You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. If you're a first-time guest, I just want to say we're happy to have you this morning. So glad that you're able to join us. And those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. We want to invite you into our home. We want to come, encourage you to come and join with us on a Sunday morning as we celebrate together. This morning, before I get started in um, our our Digging into God's word, I do want to recognize somebody who's been uh, a faithful servant in the life of our church, and he is celebrating a five-year anniversary with us, and that is Garrett Burns. Garrett serves as our college and our discipleship pastor, so Garrett, come on up here. We want to recognize Garrett. We got a little plaque for him, um, and the plaque says, Garrett Burns, in appreciation for five years of faithful service. Come over here, brother. In the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, serving the Lord Jesus and Scotts Hill family. Want to give this to you in appreciation for your five years of service, and we give a financial gift as well. Uh, in honoring that, and we're so grateful for all the staff that God has brought to us, and particularly these days, God's bringing a lot of younger guys and girls on our staff, and it's really encouraging because these guys keep me on my toes. They tell me what to say and what not to say in our culture anymore, and so they're really shaping me and helping me, but I bless the Lord for our staff. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you so much. We have some other individuals that in the month of January are celebrating uh, some anniversaries. Carol Batts has been with us for 33 years. She's my uh, uh, administrative assistant, my secretary. And then we also have Jim Dunn, who's here for 26 years now. And uh, we've got some other, Tucker Kelly's eight years this month. We got some that are three years, some that are two years. I can't remember them all. I knew I'd forget some of the names, but we're so grateful for the longevity that we have of the staff at Scott. Hill certainly makes my job a lot easier. And so we're, we're, and God keeps sending us new people, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, Speaking of anniversaries, this May, I will have been here 29 years coming up in this May. And when I came, no, I'm not trying to ease myself into that. I'm trying to segue into my illustration, okay? (laughs) But 29 years ago, when I came here, I came as a student pastor. My job was the associate pastor of students and children. And so when I came on staff, one of the things they gave me the the task of doing is strengthening our student ministry. And one of the things I believed strongly in was mission trips with students. So we would go on mission trips. We would do mission work together. But always in the course of those mission trips, we would have fun. And one of the things I love to take the students on are professional baseball games. Because in the summertime, you can go to a professional baseball baseball game. A lot of them have never seen a professional baseball game. So on one of those trips, we went on this professional baseball game. I think it was the Minnesota Twins. We were doing some work up in Minnesota. And so we, we got there and there were 42 high school students plus the workers and we're all there and we bought all these tickets. So we had a big block. And of course, because we're on a mission trip with teenagers, we bought the nosebleed section tickets, right? And the, and the game was somewhere in the afternoon time, so it wasn't a prime time. People were not showing up, and we got our seats in the nosebleed section. And then we start looking down. We're on the third baseline. We look down there, and there's a whole section where nobody's sitting. I mean, wonderful seats, wonderful view. Possibility of catching foul balls are enormous. 
So I'm sitting there and I'm eyeing those seats and I'm thinking, I'm going to wait a couple of innings. Then after a few innings, I'm going to ease my way from the heavenlies and then go down towards where those seats are available. And I decided I would take a couple of guys with me. So after a few innings go by, the seats are still vacant, but then people start kind of descending into there, sitting in those seats that they didn't pay for. So I was going to take a couple of guys, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it right. If I'm going to steal a seat that I didn't pay for, I'll at least ask permission to do so. And there was an attendant working there, and I walked up to him, and I said, listen, um, I noticed that all these seats are vacant. We're sitting up there, um, and nobody's sitting here. I was just wondering, is it okay if we just go and sit in these places right here since nobody's taking these seats? He said, let me see your ticket, sir. And so I showed him my ticket. He said, no, sir, you didn't purchase those tickets. You have to go right back up there. Well, that infuriated me because I'm watching people flood into there. And so I'm thinking, no, no, wait a minute. I purchased 48 tickets for this game. And there are 42 high school students that are sitting up there. Surely, with all of that investment and bringing them here, you can let me go sit in those seats. He said, sir, did you purchase that ticket for those seats? I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, that's the way it works here. And he turned around and walked away. And I thought, man, why did I even ask? I could have taken some of your students and taught them some wonderful lessons. But no, I went back to my seat and I was fuming because this was my thought. I bought those tickets. I'm entitled to sit wherever I want. And you know what I began to realize? That entitlement runs so deeply in all of us, doesn't it? We live in a culture where we are swimming in entitlement. We live in a culture where the American dream is that you deserve what you want. In fact, when you look at our culture and how much entitlement is all around us, you will agree with these things. What are we entitled to? We feel entitled to healthcare. We're entitled to free education. We're entitled to high-paying jobs. We're entitled to honor, especially if they're letters before or after our names. We're entitled to comfort and ease. We're entitled to be the first people in line. We're entitled to have the best seats, a trophy, an award, a high grade, even though we didn't earn it. We're We're entitled to have respect from our children and grandchildren. And we're entitled for our children and our grandchildren to be the stars of whatever they participate in. Because entitlement runs deeply in all of us. And now I just want to say entitlement is not anything new. It is clear that the list could go on and on. But I came across a commencement speech at Wellesley High School in Pennsylvania in 2012. The commencement speech was given by the English Um, teacher of the school, David McAuliffe. And he begins by making some comments. And as he's speaking to the graduating class of 2012, here's what he says. He says, none of you is special. You're not special. You're not exceptional. You are pampered, cosseted, doted upon, helmeted, bubble-wrapped, nudged, controlled, feted, and fawned over. And contrary to your U9 soccer trophy and whatever it says, or your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of certain purple dinosaurs or that nice Mr. Rogers, 
No matter how often your maternal caped crusader mother has swooped to save you, you are nothing special. You are one in seven billion people. Your planet is not the center of the solar system. Your solar system is not the center of its galaxy. Your galaxy is not the center of the universe. In fact, the universe has no center. Therefore, you cannot be it. If everyone is special, no one is. If everyone gets a trophy, awards become meaningless. You see, you're not special, you're just entitled. And I thought, wow. Well, I'd push back on that and say, wait, wait, my kids are special. We're all special. We're creating an image of God. We are image bearers of God, but here's his point. If you live with an entitled spirit and you live with a heart of entitlement, then no one can be exceptional. No one can be excellent because everyone's entitled to the same thing. Isn't that true? Isn't that even true of us in this room? We swim in entitlement. And I really believe that most of us in this room don't even realize how entitled we really are. You see, entitlement is not something that just this culture outside of the walls of the church feels. Because we all feel it. We all live it. In fact, there are times as believers, we feel that God owes us stuff. God owes me salvation. God owes me grace. God owes me the blessings that I want. God owes me comfort. God owes me peace. And what we begin to do is we begin to become so entitled that we think even God himself is the one who owes us this. And the problem with entitlement is it will destroy a people. Just recently in a, in a newspaper, um, they, they wrote this about the dangers of entitlement. The culture of entitlement is parasitic and self-destructive. No person, society, or nation can long survive, let alone thrive, when a sense of entitlement is pervasive. The sense of entitlement breeds arrogance, conceit, pride, and fosters social hierarchy. Those qualities weaken and destroy nations. And we live in a culture where not only are we swimming in entitlements, I would suggest that we are drowning in them. And the same is true for those of us who claim Christ as Lord. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this series called Unleashed. And we're looking at the kinds of restraints that can keep us from living a rich and a full life in Jesus Christ. Now, the key is rich and full in Jesus. And so certain restraints in our life can keep us from that. Two weeks ago, we looked at the restraint of comparison. And we saw how dangerous that restraint is. When we compare our lives to others, we can never run the race that God has for us. And we're not going to be looking to the author and the perfecter of our faith. Instead, we'll be looking at the influences of the world that will lead us down a path of destruction. So comparison is one of those restraints we need to break free from. Last week, we talked about the restraint of unforgiveness. And that issue of unforgiveness can keep us chained and enslaved. It creates memories that are filled with pain. It creates a prison of our own making. And only as we cancel the debt of hurt, only as we close the book of the pain from the hurt, can we be set free and that restraint be removed. 
But today I want to talk about the restraint of entitlement. And as we talk about this restraint of entitlement, we're going to look at another parable that Jesus tells us that helps us to understand the characteristics of entitlement and how do we kill entitlement in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke. The third book in the New Testament, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now, I love the way Jesus teaches, and he's always inserting parables, which a parable is just simply an, an earthly story with a heavenly truth. And so what he's going to do is tell a parable to a group of very self-important people. In Luke's gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is in the home of a ruler of Pharisees. In other words, this is a very important man. He's a guy that rules the spiritually elite of the culture. The Pharisees were the experts of the law. They were the ones who knew the Mosaic law. Not only did they know it, they tried to practice every single jot and tittle of it at least externally. And what happens is they become to be these spiritual elites of their culture. Most people in that culture looked up to the Pharisees, but they were self-righteous. They were self-consumed. These were the people who were self-importance. And when Pharisees threw a party, they were very select in who came to that party because they didn't want any outside sinners tainting their party and they wanted people who were either on their level or above their level because the Pharisees were always out to make themselves look good and better and something that can advance them. And in this situation, Jesus is invited to the party, but also is a sick man, which is contrary to anything that they would ever do. Verse one, one Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now this was on the Sabbath, which on the Sabbath, meals were already pre-cooked. There were things they could not do. They had to adhere to the law. There were 39 commandments built around honoring the Sabbath. And you couldn't violate any of those. So they invited Jesus on the Sabbath and they invited this sick man on the Sabbath. Why? They're watching Jesus carefully. They know the compassion of Jesus. They know his tendency to want to heal. So they're thinking, we're going to trap him. He's going to do something. He's going to try to heal this man because of his compassion. And he's going to prove to us that he cannot be from God because he's going to violate the Sabbath. But Jesus blows their plan by asking a question. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, when he says, is it lawful to heal? There's no prohibition about someone being supernaturally, instantly healed on the Sabbath because that would be a sign that it's from God. Now, if a person were sick and it wasn't a non-threatening life situation, they would have to wait until another day to go see a doctor. But Jesus understands fully that they're talking about, they're looking to some kind of supernatural healing. So he asked them, is it lawful? Well, they couldn't answer him. It says they were silent because the law said nothing. And I love what Jesus does. Then he took the man and he healed him and sent him away. He had dropsy, which means there was some kind of fluid buildup in his body. There was some kind of inflammation. He was miserable. And Jesus, so compassionate, he heals him on the Sabbath 
But he does another thing that's compassion. He sends him out of the room so he wouldn't have to stay there, hang out with these self-righteous, self-important people. And as he sends them out, everybody's watching. So Jesus asked another question. He said, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things because they knew they would take care of their own children and property. But here's what else Jesus saw. As he was in that room, he's watching all these self-important people position themselves in a place of honor. And as they're positioning themselves in the place of honor, he tells a parable. And he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed that they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Least someone more distinguished than you be invited by him and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me give you three characteristics of entitlement that is deadly to our lives and to our Christian testimony. Here's the first thing. Entitlement focuses on what you think you deserve. Entitlement focuses on what you think you deserve. The problem with entitlement is that it tells you that you deserve something, that people owe you something. And so with entitlement, you become so self-absorbed that everything is about you. Can you imagine Jesus in this room? He's watching all these Pharisees trying to jockey for position. Now, we don't know how they do it. Some of them may have been very subtle. They may have been very subtle to position themselves at the place of honor. And when the master said, it's time to sit down, oh, oh, here's a seat. Let me take this one. Kind of like some of you do at a fellowship when you position yourself very carefully by the food and wait for the prayer. You know what I'm talking about. And, and, and so sometimes, maybe they were doing that. Maybe they were not so subtle. Maybe one Pharisee was pulling the tapping on the shoulder, turning the head and going around the opposite direction. Hey, I beat you. Maybe there's one over there that's just like, well, if I trip this guy, I can run in front of him, help him up, and then take the place of honor. We don't know what it was, but Jesus saw it. And he saw all of these people concerned about themselves because they were entitled to have the high position. Aren't you glad you and I are not like that? Aren't you glad we're, we're, we're not people who want to be the first in the line? Aren't you glad that we don't go to a Christian concert and we don't want to be, sit on the front row so that we can get the best views of everything? Aren't you glad that we don't come to a church like this? And in a church, people don't come early to sit on the front row. They come early to sit on the back row. Oh, 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 okay, I've quit preaching. I'm going to meddling now. Or some of you come early so you can sit on the edges and not the middle. Or we can have our best place. You see, we're way more entitled than we care to think we are. And you know, let me tell you this. Not only are we swimming in entitlement, but this is something I learned a long time ago. I'm teaching my children how to swim in it too. Come on. 
I remember when, I, when our kids were little, we loved amusement parks, love amusement parks. And because there were four of us, we were the perfect amusement park family. We would go on roller coasters. We all loved it. And we would get on those roller coasters. And we would get up early because I wanted to be the first one at the park. I wanted to get there early so I could manage my time, be a good steward of my day. But I really just wanted to beat everybody else there. And so we'd get there early and I'd get the kids up and we'd go right in some of these amusement parks, they would have these ropes and they would hide this rope in this section and there would be this attendant over here. And when it was time for the park to open, they would undo the rope and they would walk over here and everybody would flood through. Well, I knew how they do the rope. So we would go line up right in the front. Now, if the person's on the right side with the hook, we're going to line up over here. Because if they open it, they got to walk way over here. And if you're over here, you got to wait for them to get out of your way. So, and if they're on both sides, get in the middle. You don't know which way it's going to go. So I've had all these strategies. And I would tell my kids, you get right on the end of that rope. And when they open, we run. And Leslie said, what if somebody's in front of me? I said, she got flip-flops. You stand on the back of that, she's going down. And my wife would be back there just rolling her eyes. And so we knew where we were going to go. We were going to run to that ride. Why do you want to be first? So you can ride on the front of the roller coaster. And we would run to that place. And Chris would not run. She would walk. And I learned a long time ago, I better not get on that ride without her. So it didn't matter how early I got there. I had to wait for her to get there. And what am I doing the whole time? I'm teaching my children. It's about you. It's about you. It's about you being first. It's about you being in the front. It's about you being in that first car. It's about you having life around you. And and let me just say something. Parents, we do that with our kids. Do we have any millennials in here? Any millennials? Raise your hand if you're millennials. Don't be ashamed. This is your opportunity to shine. Millennials, you got any millennials in here? Let me tell you, millennials have had a bad rap for a long time because millennials have been accused of being the most entitled generation of all generations. Do we have any baby boomers in here? Baby boomers, all the baby boomers. Let me tell you, look at me, baby boomers. You can put your hands down because I don't want to embarrass you too much, but here's what I'm telling you. We complain about the millennials. You raised them. You raised them. I raised them. And do you hear what I'm saying? Well, we can accuse the other generations of what we trained them to do and trained them to be. Because let's be honest, let's be honest. This is painful. We all love to build our mountains. And there's one mountain we love. It's called Me Mountain. What does Me Mountain look like? I Me, mine, myself. And we enjoy climbing that mountain, don't we? We are way more entitled than we ever think we are. And then we come to the words of Jesus in the midst of all of this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, he said to you and me, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We don't like that, do we? Jesus has just undercut every entitlement philosophy that we've ever had by saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come after me, first of all, you deny yourself. It's not about you. 
Secondly, you take up your cross. You know what that means? When you take up your cross, you're going to an execution. You take up your cross to die. And it means this, that we are to die to our own self-consumed passions. Listen to me carefully. We got a hole in our gospel. It's like a donut. And the hole is this part of dying to ourselves. We want to live our life all around the edge of that hole. But in the center of the gospel is a call to die. And the problem with entitlement is it always focuses on what you think you deserve. But let me tell you the second characteristic, if that's not bad enough. Here's the second thing about entitlements. Entitlement leads to disappointment. It leads to disappointment. It always does. Consider the parable again. Jesus is looking at all of these Pharisees. They're jockeying for position. They're trying to get to the front. Here's Ricky. Ricky moves all the way up to the front. He's sitting there. He's all happy and everything. And then all of a sudden, the master says, no, oh, Ricky, Ricky. Ricky, nope, nope, nope. Not even close. You come back here, Ricky, and you give it to Bobby. Ricky, Bobby, you get it. So you, know, you give it to Bob. Bobby gets the front. And then what happens? The person who doesn't get his way is upset and they become angry. And not only are they angry, but listen to this. They believe that because their expectations haven't been met and it's no longer an issue of an expectation. Now it's an injustice because I deserve that seat. And if you don't let me have it, then you're the problem. You're messing up my life. I am the victim. And what you have done is an injustice to me. I deserve that raise. And I didn't get it. I deserve that relationship. I deserve to be married. I deserve to have children. I deserve to have that kind of house. And if you don't get it, it's not a loss of expectation as much as it is an injustice that has been done to you. And you know what happens when there are injustices? We blame other people. And there has been a proliferation of lawsuits because people don't get their way. Let me give you three that I just came across this week. The San Francisco Giants had a baseball game on Father's Day. They were giving out gifts to all men because of Father's Day. And there was a class action lawsuit because women didn't get a gift and those who identify as men didn't get a gift. And so they sued the, 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 the giants. Oh, 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 here's another one. A professor at a university was invited to a Christmas party and there was mistletoe hanging over the door and he sued the university for sexual harassment. Sounds like a guy that nobody just wanted to kiss. <laughs> oh, here's my favorite. Here's my favorite. A psychic sued her doctor because he had to do a CAT scan. And she said the CAT scan impaired her from her psychic activities from that point on. She won $996,000 from that. Here's my question. If she's so psychic, shouldn't she have seen that coming? <laughs> but isn't it amazing? And then what happens? We become very angry. I want to tell you, entitled people 
are some of the most unhappy people you will ever meet. Because if they don't get what they want, then it's somebody else's fault. I love the way James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing to the church in Jerusalem. These are believers. And he's writing to them about their quarreling and their fighting and their disagreements. This is a church. I mean, can you even imagine that churches get in arguments with one another? Here's what he says to them. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight in your quarrel. And what happens ultimately is disagreements bring us to a place of disappointment, and then we feel that injustices take place. That's why you have riots in Atlanta, because people don't get their way. That's how you, why you have a fight at a Waffle House at two in the morning because people don't get their way. That's why you have churches splitting and dividing because people don't get their way. I read about a, an executive from a very large company was in an airport with everyone else and his flight got canceled. And, and everyone, it impacted everybody on that plane. And there was a long line of people waiting to be rerouted at, this, at this, this counter. And a young girl was working behind it, trying to help everybody. There were about 75 people in the line. This executive couldn't stand it. He made his way to the front. He was mad. He was angry. He went up to the girl. She, he said, I demand right now that you get me on a plane. I've got an important meeting. I cannot miss it. I'm an executive, da 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 And she said, well, I'm sorry, sir. You have to get back in line with everyone else. He looked at her and said, do you know who I am? Do you have any idea who I am? She so calmly grabbed a microphone and said, ladies and gentlemen, I have a man in front of me who doesn't know who he is. And if any of you happens to know the identity of this man, would you please come forward and inform him of it? Everybody broke out in applause. We might not do that out loud, but don't we do that inside? What an injustice. Let me tell you the third and the greatest problem with entitlement is it destroys gratitude. When you're entitled, you are a thankless person. Why? Because here's the thing. If I think you owe me something, I don't have to be grateful when I receive it because it's owed to me. If you give me a car, out of your gratitude, I will thank you for it. But if I purchase that car at market value and we have a deal and you give me the title, I don't need to say, oh, thank you, you're the greatest person ever. No, I'm entitled to it. And I want to tell you, entitled people are thankless people. Have you ever noticed how some people can have so much and so much and so much and yet they're so ungrateful for what they have? And the problem is this, the more and the more that you and I have, the more entitled that we are, the less thankful that we are because we believe it's owed to us. People who are entitled are unhappy people. And let me just say this, one of the hallmarks of a person who's in opposition to a holy God is ingratitude. 
You see, ingratitude is not just simply some psychological problem that I have. Ingratitude isn't just simply a deficiency of some emotional feeling I should have. Ingratitude is a sin. And when you look at Romans chapter 1, as God defines the people who are in opposition to him, here's what he says in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The mark of a person who's an enemy of God is thanklessness. Now, now here's the problem with us. We live in a culture where we're so blessed. Would you agree with that? We live in a culture that compared to the rest of the world, every person in this room and listening to my voice is rich beyond measure. And yet, how many times a day are you grateful for what you have? Well, and and listen, I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to me, okay? When's the last time you've gone to your water faucet as you turned on in a sink, you said, Lord, thank you for running water. And thank you that some of it is hot. When's the last time you turned a switch on and said, Lord, thank you for electricity? Now, if you're coming from California, that's a hit and miss thing, so. (laughs) But how many times have you thanked the Lord for that? When's the last time you opened up your pantry and you saw all this food and you said, Lord, thank you for all this food that I have. Or open the refrigerator. Lord, thank you for the frozen meat that I can reach any time. Thank you for for, uh, central air and heating. Thank you for an automobile to drive. Thank you. You see, what happens is we become so used to having what we have that we can feel so entitled to what we have. And when you become entitled, you no longer look at what you have. You look at what you don't have instead of what your blessings are. And entitlement always kills gratitude. So it puts its focus on what you deserve. It makes people disappointed and become victimized. And entitlement also robs us of gratitude. So how do we kill entitlement? How do we kill entitlement? I'm gonna give you four ways to kill entitlement. And we're gonna go pretty quickly through these. Some of you are thinking, wow, four. He just went through three, now we got four. Okay. (laughs) Because some of you are entitled to get to Waffle House before I finish this thing, right? Okay, let me tell you how to kill entitlement. Number one, walk in grace. Walk in grace. Why do I say that? Because you don't deserve anything, and neither do I. Let me tell you what we deserve. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I was reading this, and here's what I thought. Even with the high inflation today, the wages of sin is still death. You and I deserve death. Because we are born sinners and we sin by choice. We are enemies of God. We are born separated from a holy God. Somebody asked me the other day, why does God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You and I are born going to hell. God rescues people from hell. And what happens is when we understand that we owe, we have no rights We are 
destined to separation from a holy God. But the free gift that God gives to you and me is Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians, he says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You and I, God didn't look down on us and say, you know what, boy, man, she would be really good for my kingdom. Oh, you know what, he's got some, no. God looked down on the brokenness and the separation of our lives from him and in his own grace chose us to be his. That is what we get by his grace. And so here's what I'm saying. As you live your life, it's not that you're walking around saying, oh, I don't deserve anything. No, it's living in freedom. Oh, Father, for your amazing grace. I deserve nothing, but because of your incredible grace, you've forgiven me of my sin. You've adopted me as your son or your daughter. You've sealed me with your Holy Spirit. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I deserve nothing, but I will rejoice in all of your mercy. That kills entitlements that we're sons and daughters of the king. But here's the second thing. Walk in humility. Walk in humility. Now, here's what I want to tell you today. I don't have easy solutions. These are not comfortable solutions, but they're the only solutions that God's word gives us. We walk in humility. We see in Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility. That's self. I don't need to give you any commentary on that. What do we do? Nothing from selfish ambition. We're to live with humility in the sense that we put other people first. No, you go first. No, you, it, what would happen if the whole body of Christ walked in humility? We probably wouldn't get a whole lot done. No, I think we would because we stimulate one another to good works. But as we walk in humility, we put other people first. I saw a video this week that just blew my mind. It, it, it was a wrestling match for middle schoolers. And this one kid walks out and he's got an undefeated record in wrestling. But then walks out this kid with cerebral palsy. He could barely even make it on the mat. And you're like, oh, this is not gonna be pretty. This kid's gonna take him down in 10 seconds. But this kid with this undefeated record reaches out and shakes the young man's hand. And he's so gentle with him. And the young man puts his arm around him and this wrestler that's undefeated kind of moves and maneuvers him in such a way that he falls on his back. He pulls the young man on top of him and he, he doesn't just give the, 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 the uh, wrestling match up quickly. He slowly works with him and rolls him around, but he eventually lets that boy with cerebral palsy win. That's humility. Now, let me say something. That does not mean you do not do the best you can do in competitions. It does not mean you do not try to win and try to achieve and have high excellence. It's not that. It's just saying you don't have to be first. And when you do win, you don't have to tell everybody how great you are. You walk in humility. And when you and I walk in humility, it kills entitlement because I don't have to be the first one in line. Thirdly, walk in gratitude. 
Walk in gratitude. Here's what Paul writes in Colossians chapter three, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, to the Father through him. How many times does giving thanks appear in this verse? Three. Clue, they're in yellow. Three, which tells us this. Listen, one of the greatest ways you destroy entitlement is constantly giving thanks. Why? Because you don't have the attitude that it's owed to you. You know what I loved about the Jewish people is that they had what was called the 18 benedictions. Many of you may have never heard of that, the 18 benedictions. The word benediction just means speaking blessings. And the 18 benedictions were speaking blessings to God, thanking God for the blessings in his life each day. They began to call it just the 18. And it always began with, blessed are you, O Lord, our God. In the English language, there are 18 letters to that. But 18 times through the course of the day, they would begin with that. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God. And they would add something. And they would do that all day long. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, for this day because I don't deserve it. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, for this coffee. It is so good. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, for, for the job that I have. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, that all the lights are green today. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, and go through the whole course of the day. And when you and I begin to live with that kind of gratitude, we recognize nothing is owed to me, but everything is given to me. And all through the course of the day, I can do it. And here's another thing they did. They didn't just have a prayer over their, their meal. Lord, thank you for this meal and dig in. They blessed every aspect of it. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, for this steak. Oh, it's good. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, for these mashed potatoes. Yes. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, that I don't have Brussels sprouts every day. The smell stays with you every day. No. But it's a constant thankfulness to what God is doing. So it's a heart of gratitude. But here's the last one, and I love this one. Walk in service. Walk in service. At the end of this, Jesus goes to another parable. And here's what he says in this second parable. He said, also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. He said, don't invite people who just reciprocate. Instead, next verse, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot pay you, repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Serve people. The greatest illustration of service that I see in scripture is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 13, one of my favorite chapters is Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And before they do the meal, somebody forgot to get the servant to wash the feet. And here is the most powerful person on the planet. The only person who has never sinned the one who is about to die for their sins. 
coming to each one of those men with their dirty, crusty feet and getting down and washing the feet of his disciples, even of Judas. And he serves them. That's the heart that God has for you and me. And you see, the thing is, as some of you, and I, I will be honest with you, I think all of us have a problem with entitlement. Some of you are going to leave here today and get on the road, and immediately you're going to sense this spirit of entitlement. You're going to go to a restaurant. I can't believe they got a table before I did. What would happen if we say, oh, no, no, they've got more people than us. Let them go through first. But some of us are living with this restraint of entitlement. And you want to know what happens? Everybody owes us. We're unhappy. We're cynical. We're mad. And we're ungrateful. And the people who are around us know that. And what God is calling us to do today, to live in the fullness and the richness of Jesus Christ, pull that stake up. Walk in grace. You will see how amazing it is. Walk in humility. You will see the hurt of people that is greater than your own. Walk in service and you will be fulfilled as you give yourself to others. Walk in thanksgiving. And the joy of the Lord is going to walk with you through the course of the day. God's calling us to pull up the stake. And I don't think there's a person in here that is exempt from this struggle. If you're a believer here today, the call is for you to look to Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of your faith, and do what he did. And die to yourself and to die to all of these things. If you're not a believer here today, my friend, your greatest need is forgiveness. You're not entitled to it. God doesn't owe you anything. But God has provided for you everything through his son. And he's calling you today to surrender to him. Would you do that? And then you will know the richness and the fullness of Jesus Christ. I want to pray for us. And then when I finish praying, we'll be dismissed. But I want to pray for us this morning. That God would destroy these attitudes of entitlement. And we would walk in that abundant grace and humility and thanksgiving and service. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way your word just cuts right through all of the junk of our lives. And Father, the things that we have taken for granted so often, your Holy Spirit this morning is bringing back to our mind to remind us of how easily it is for us to be enslaved to what we think we deserve. Father, we deserve nothing.
And yet, in your goodness, you have given us eternal life. Father, for those who are not believers, those who have not trusted Christ, I pray, Father, today, I pray, Father, today that they would surrender everything to you. And that they would consider Christ and surrender their lives to him. That they might be forgiven. That they might have eternal life. And Father, that they might have a new life in Jesus Christ. For those who are watching online, those who are in this room, we ask that you would do these things for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.